welcome to The Expressionists. I'm Olivia Rosenman. And I am Helen Rydstrand. And today on the show, we are getting a little bit silly. That's right. It's the end of the year, which means many people are gearing up for traditional religious celebrations. That means ham-fisted attempts at meal planning, mad panic over gift buying, and preparing yourself to deal with extended exposure to your family, because even though you might not like them, we all know blood is thicker than water. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere, Jack Frost is probably already nipping at your nose and you might be setting your hopes on a white Christmas. And if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, you're probably setting your sights on soaking up some sun over the break, hoping for an Indian summer so that you can lie on the beach right through till it's dog days. Now, talking of searing heat, Helen, something else that burns at really high temperatures is oil. Helen, you've got bags under your eyes. Were you up late last night burning the midnight oil? I mean, actually, you don't have bags under your eyes, but it was the perfect setup. You look very nice. Thank you. That's better. Well rested. As a matter of fact, I was not this time burning the midnight oil, um, though thanks for your commentary, Olivia. But I am editing this episode, so there's still time for that, I guess. Though I'll just be burning the midnight electricity these days, of course. Mm. But before I get into the midnight oil, I think it's probably a good idea to explain why an oil idiom is seasonally appropriate. Yes. It's not a nod to the retro summery scent of coconut oil on our beaches. It's Hanukkah, the eight-day Jewish festival of lights, which is happening as we speak. This year, it started on the 12th of December. As you know, Olive, I'm not Jewish myself, but I have been the shiksa partner of an excellent Jewish man for many years now. And as you know, Helen, I'm not really a Jew, but as my last name indicates, I am Jew-ish. <laughs> Indeed. So I have some amateur experience of Jewish holidays. And do you know what I've noticed? No. What? <laughs> So I've noticed that many of the Jewish holidays have excellent themed food. So at Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, you say to everyone, Shana Tova Umetuka, which translates to wishing them a good and sweet year. So you eat a lot of sweet food to get ahead on the sweet year thing. The challah bread is sweet and has raisins in it, and you get apple dipped in honey and honey cake, and no doubt other things that I have forgotten. At Passover, there is a service you do before you get to the main dinner, and that involves various symbolic foods. For example, a bit of herbs dipped in brine, representing the misery experienced by Jewish slaves in Egypt. And of course, the matzah, a dry, flavorless, but strangely addictive cracker or unleavened bread that the fleeing Jews did not have time to let rise. Oh, also involves one of my personal favorite snacks, boiled eggs. Ah, uh, yes. Love a good boiled egg. In tears. Yeah. Yes, yes. Which is also quite delicious, I have to say. Now, Hanukkah is not a big deal in the Jewish faith, but because it falls near Christmas, it's become a bit more important. The story is this. In the 2nd century BCE, Israel and the Holy Temple in Jerusalem were reclaimed from the Greek Seleucid Empire by a Jewish group called the Maccabees. But when they got into the temple and went to relight the menorah, they found that there was only oil left for one day. The miracle is that this little bit of oil lasted for eight days. Hence the special menorah with nine candles for Hanukkah, the extra one is to light the others, which are progressively lit each night over the holiday period. So, what's the food theme of Hanukkah, Olive? Is it something to do with oil? Yes. Donuts, latkes, mm. most importantly, um, other fried things. Oh, very good. Yes, I'm all for any holiday which is celebrated with fried goods. Mm -hmm. There are 
quite a lot of oil idioms, actually, including a few I didn't know. For example, in 20th century Australian and New Zealand slang, good oil is true facts, information or news. But on the other hand, old oil means glibly persuasive or misleading talk, nonsense or falsehood. It's funny because these days, good oil is like avocado and (laughs) almond oil and all the good fans. Yeah. (laughs) True, true. And another novel one for me is that, according to the OED, to check someone's oil in the US blues music circles from about the 1930s means to have sex with them. Cool. Is that maybe something to do with like the insertion of a tube? Yeah. Yeah, A greased tube. You know, looking at the inner workings kind Mm. of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Okay. So those are great, Helen, but time to give us the good oil on burning the midnight oil. The noun phrase midnight oil refers to laborious or extra effort, especially studying late at night. It's extracted from the phrase to burn the midnight oil, meaning to work diligently or conscientiously, which is clearly about staying up late, working and burning through the oil in your lamp to do so. The first entry in the Oxford English Dictionary is from 1635, and it's a bit lovely. It comes from Francis Qual's Book of Emblems, which is a collection of illustrated morals. We spend our midday sweat, our midnight oil. We tire the night in thought, the day in toil. It's nice, huh? It is nice. Hmm. So this makes it seem very virtuous to burn the midnight oil. But though I definitely do this on occasion myself, I generally advise my students strongly against it. Just because, obviously, you don't do your best work when you're meant to be asleep. Mm. Mostly. Mm. The idea that burning the midnight oil and doing your work in a crazy all-nighter is a bit foolish and disorganized might be a little more recent perspective. So in 1972, The Guardian provides an example sentence for the OED along these lines. It is, the speech bore distinct marks of being something of a midnight oil effort. It's always obvious. Mm. So, Olive, were you ever or are you now a midnight oil burner? Actually, Helen, no, not at all. I distinctly remember, especially in my university days, that I actually couldn't do all-nighters. I would just go to bed and then get up early the next morning. That was my that was my tactic. There was just like a certain point at which you couldn't... You might say I hit a wall. <laughs> yeah, well, I used to do it, you know, the all-nighters a lot more, but uh, these days it just doesn't really work for me. One more point about the origin of the idiom. I think it actually must be older than this 1635 instance suggests because there are early examples of the word oil alone being used to refer to laborious study. So if you've been studying hard, you might smell of oil. And there's also the consequent idea that you can lose your oil, that is waste your intellectual labor. So you've done all that study for nothing. The Oxford English Dictionary's first example of this is from 1548 and appears in the following sentence. They were like to lose both work and oil. So in this case, oil seems like it's almost something produced by work, like brain sweat or something. You know what's interesting, what this actually makes me think about, Helen? Do you know how to say, like, go you in Chinese? I, that's not one of the things that I know. Please tell me. <laughs> you say jiao, which means add oil. Ah, how fantastic. Hmm. There you go. You know what all of this makes me think of? I don't know. Elbow grease? Ah, yes, elbow grease. A bit of hard work. It's often, I feel like elbow grease is often associated with cleaning. Yeah. And why someone has not yet made a cleaning product called elbow grease seems like a lost opportunity. Definitely. That's a really good point. We can talk more about that idea later. Mm -hmm. 
my mum uses elbow grease a lot. My mother also. Yeah. So I chased that rabbit and I was surprised to find that it has about as old a history as midnight oil does. The Oxford English Dictionary's first example for grease of the elbow is from the 17th century poet Andrew Marvel, who's most famous, you might remember, for the lyric to his coy mistress, in which he tries to convince his girlfriend to have sex with him before marriage because they won't be young and hot forever. Mm, interesting. <laughs> it's a great poem. <laughs> but the elbow grease is not in that poem, unsurprisingly. It's in a political pamphlet he wrote in 1672, in which he warns that two or three brawny fellows in a corner with mere ink and elbow grease do more the harm than a hundred systematical divines with their sweaty preaching. Uh, what about any more recent usages, Helen? Yes, so of course it's a favourite in popular music, though I think this actually shows how idioms' meanings can drift, especially once the historical context changes, i.e. we don't use lambs anymore. So my first thought, as is any self-respecting Australians, is of our very own midnight oil, often affectionately known as the oils, and my feeling is the vibe that they're going for with this name is staying up all night, rocking out, rather than studying. I never thought of it that way. Did you find anything about how they came up with the name? Uh, well, apparently it was drawn out of a hat. When Peter Garrett joined the band, it was called Farm. Uh, Farm is a terrible name, yep. so I'm glad they changed that. I mean, I'm sure it has something to do with them later becoming actually successful. But it was inspired by a 1967 Jimi Hendrix song that appears on Electric Ladyland. So the lyrics aren't that clear in this song, because obviously it's mainly about the guitar, but the gist is that he's burning the midnight lamp alone. So we get the image of moping alone in your room here. Delightfully, Dolly Parton and Porter Wagoner have a song about almost the same thing, except that they are separated lovers. This one's from 1972, and it's called Burning the Midnight Oil. We both live in separate homes, where there's no love at all, staying up late, burning the midnight oil. Dolly Parton. Do you know she has a great program where she sends out books to kids? Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I think she's great. You know what I think about Dolly Parton, Helen? The higher the hair, the closer to heaven. I think that's a very good point to end on. I'm just about out of oil here, but before we talk turkey, I'd like to introduce our special guest for this episode, our good mate Tom Karma, who we've invited to come and talk about the spirit of giving at this festive time. Yes. Oh, hello, Tom. How are you? Hi, Tom. How hello, are you? Olivia and Helen. How are you? <laughs> well, well the period thank you. episode, my favourite one yet. <laughs> oh, I'm glad to hear that. We're calling to interview you, Tom. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, sure. Great. But I can't right now. I'm about to go to Cat Stevens with my mum. Uh. <laughs> it will only take like two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. You got two minutes? All right, go, go. So, Tom. 
the silly season also is strongly associated with giving, and that's why we thought that we would talk to you because I am aware that you run this great thing called the Giving Circle. So can you just tell us what it's all about? Well, uh, the Giving Circle is a, a little group that I set up last year. You know, I didn't come up with this uh, Giving Circle concept. It's it's a concept that exists out there. I think it's much bigger in the States than the UK. But the idea of a, of, of a Giving Circle is that as an individual, I may not be able to contribute a lot to a particular cause, but if I can group people together and, and we each give a small donation throughout the year each, together we can actually make a much more significant donation. And so the Giving Circle that I set up, I convinced 15 people to put $20 a week into a bank account. So that's a, about $1,000 each. And then at the end of the year, we sit down and we choose a charity or a local cause, or it could even be an individual to gift that money to. And yeah, the concept is, you know, as an individual, I could only give $1,000. But if I can convince 14 of my friends to also give, then we can give a $15,000 donation. Yeah, that's amazing. So last year, you already ran one giving circle. And can you tell us a little bit about the cause that you guys chose then? Well, the way that the the giving circle that we ran last year, and we're, we're doing the same thing again this year, is that we had a number of group members submit different proposals of who they were putting forward as potential recipients. And we had a really broad range of things. We had a proposal for a lady from PNG who is currently studying nursing in Australia, who needed some financial assistance to get through the last semester. There was a, a cool place called Gardens for Good. It's an organization that links up newly migrated people to Australia with small gardening businesses and and together it kind of helps bring them into the the lives of of people within the community. But what we ended up voting for was a a kind of youth leadership program, which was run by the Sydney University Settlement Neighbourhood Centre. The Neighbourhood Centre supports the local kids around the Darlington Redfern area. And through the Giving Circle, as well as some other support, they were able to run about uh, 13 to 15 kids on a youth leadership program. They were primarily Indigenous kids. And the idea of the program is that it would run over an eight-week period or so, and the kids would learn leadership skills, uh, and it would all kind of culminate in a, in a cultural trip up to Alice Springs where the kids would learn cultural knowledge from the people up there. And it's just about, you know, building the leadership capacity of those kids so that they can then start to contribute to their community. And we kind of had a mandate to keep local for small organisations. We, we really didn't want to necessarily give the money to a big organisation that already has great fundraising capabilities. We kind of wanted to keep it small, uh, local. And most importantly, if we're going to give $15,000, we really wanted to have a big impact. And so we wanted to give it to a project that we knew would have a really significant outcome. I think that's quite excellent, Tom. And Tom's on Twitter. If you want to tell him how cool you think he is, you should just shoot him a tweet. All right. Well, we'll let you go enjoy Cat Stevens. Bye. 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 Love that guy. Now, Olive, I am ready to gobble up your idiom. Okay, Helen, have you ever gone cold turkey on something? No. I have, Helen. I did this refugee ration challenge thing, maybe you remember, where I ate refugee rations for a week, the rations that are given to refugees living in UNHCR camps around the world. And that meant I went cold turkey on coffee for a full week. I know this is a very first world problem, but it was hell. 
It was hell. It was the worst thing, one of the worst things I've ever done. Wow. Yeah. Actually, I want to revise my answer. Okay. One time that I've gone cold turkey, in a manner of speaking, is when I needed to finish my PhD and I just cut myself off from Facebook. So I shut down the account for however many months it took, longer than I thought, and went cold turkey. And uh, so that's experience I have, I suppose. Right. So for those not familiar with the phrase, cold turkey is a method of addressing an addiction by sudden and complete abstinence. It's obviously a lot of things that you can be addicted to in this world, but one of the most compelling things is drugs. And that is in fact where this idiom begins. Are you ready, Helen? I'm ready Okay, to take a trip. (laughs) Okay. All right. So the first recorded usage in the Oxford English Dictionary is from 1921 in a newspaper from British Columbia in Canada. And this was like, it must have been some sort of profile or account of the work of Dr. Carlton Simon. And he was a psychiatrist who was based in New York City in the 20s and 30s when the city was like a den of crime. It was like a hotbed of debauchery and all kinds of exciting things. Uh, And drugs. There was a lot of drugs. So Dr. Simon, so he really took it upon himself to fight the crime in New York. And because he did a lot of work with drug addicts, he was particularly interested in the experience of addiction and working with drug addicts. So this newspaper that was called The Daily Colonist had this sentence, Perhaps the most pitiful figures who have appeared before Dr. Carlton Simon are those who voluntarily surrender themselves. When they go before him, they, the drug addicts, are given what is called cold turkey treatment. So, Helen, when you went cold turkey on Facebook, did your skin get all cool and clammy and covered in goosebumps, kind of like a turkey carcass in the fridge? Um... (laughs) Well, I hadn't noticed that, um, but I can't rule it out. It's quite possible. All kinds of stuff was happening to me during that time. (laughs) True, true. I do remember it. Um, Well, so that is one theory of the origin of this idiom. And logically, it makes sense, right? Um, Because it is well documented that withdrawal symptoms from drugs include fever, sweating, nausea, diarrhea, insomnia, muscle cramps, which is incidentally where we get the saying, kick the habit, and also the erection of hairs on um, your skin. I just learned is called pilo erection. (laughs) Charming. And so this theory is one that is promoted by Herb Cain, who had a regular gossip and word geek type of column in the San Francisco Chronicle for many, many years, right up until his death. And in his column about this very idiom, he referred to a description of heroin withdrawal written by William Burroughs, who, of course, was addicted to heroin for the majority of his life. And so obviously he had firsthand experience with withdrawal. And Burroughs wrote about how every addict has his own special symptom that cracks all control. And for Burroughs, this was what he called the cold burn, which was, quote, like a vast hive covering the body and then rubbed with menthol. Oh, God. I know. It's enough to make your skin crawl, isn't it? It is. It's happening to me right now. <laughs> okay. So that's that's one theory, right? The physical ramifications of withdrawal and how they make a human skin similar to mm-hmm. a turkey. Another theory about why withdrawal should be described with cold poultry comes from the Oxford Dictionary of Modern Slang. And according to this source, it's from the notion that the simple abruptness of withdrawal is similar to a simple dish of cold turkey without a garnish. Yeah, what do you think of that one, Helen? What, like both of them are equally unpleasant experiences? Someone just gives you like a bit of cold turkey and it's it's horrible. I mean, I certainly wouldn't enjoy just some cold turkey. 
But I do think that that theory is a little bit rubbish and I'm surprised that it was printed in an Oxford resource, but what can you do? So there's only one other theory that might explain that out of all the cold foods that are simple and that can be served without garnish or that have a clammy feeling like withdrawing addict's skin that turkey was chosen, and that is that it potentially relates to a much earlier idiom to talk cold turkey, which these days is usually just said as to talk turkey rather than to talk cold turkey. And it's mostly in North America. So it wasn't one that I was very familiar with until a good friend of the expressionists, Nick Healy, who is the 2SER brekkie host, looked into it on our regular segment with him last week. And if you missed that because you weren't up at Sparrow's Fart listening to 2SER, you can either catch it on our website, it's there, or you could have it served directly in to your podcast player by becoming a patron. So that is one of the perks of patronizing the expressionists on Patreon, that you get some special bonus content fed directly into your podcast player. So that's one other reason to support us. You can find the link to our Patreon page on our website at expressionists.audio if you'd like to do that. So I digress. Nick explained, and I won't go over what he said, but I will say this. Nick explained in more detail how to talk cold turkey dates back to the early 19th century. And and this likely relates to the frank and straightforward conversation relating to the trade of turkeys between Native Americans and the European colonists. So then to going cold turkey is a kind of straightforward, down-to-business way of addressing addiction. I quite like that one. Yeah, I think that one makes sense. So considering the whole sex, drugs and rock and roll thing, it's perhaps not surprising that John Lennon had a song called Cold Turkey. So in 1969, he wrote this song. Love that song. Yeah. So the song is called Cold Turkey, and I will just read out a few key lines. 36 hours, rolling in pain, praying to someone, free me again. So John Lennon and Yoko Ono had, in fact, become addicted to heroin in 1968 while the Beatles were making the White Album. And he referred to his habit in songs like Happiness is a Warm Gun, I Need a Fix Because I'm Going Down. And so this song was apparently about his attempts the next year to get off heroin. But... There is another story about this song that emerged from one of his close colleagues that apparently this song was actually just about a very severe case of food poisoning that both John Lennon and Yoko Ono suffered suffered after eating Christmas leftovers, (laughs) after eating cold turkey. Fantastic. And this real inspiration behind the song was actually kept totally secret because Lennon thought that people would laugh at him if they knew the truth about the song's origin. Isn't that great? It's wonderful. I mean, it is definitely funny, (laughs) but he should be celebrating that, you know, such a basic human experience could uh, inspire such <laughs> such creativity. <laughs> uh, right. And so, of course, these days, and as you alluded to earlier, Helen, there's a really a new addiction plaguing society right now. What do you reckon? Social media. Totally. Mm. So I found this nifty web app called Cold Turkey that basically helps you to block off sites on mm. your laptop or on your, on your computer. So if you 
decide, or you can just limit. So you might say, I'm only allowed 15 minutes of Facebook a day. You could have used that during your PhD. Yes. Well, I have one called self-control, which does something similar. Uh, yeah. I have a friend that I talked to about this app and she sent me a text later saying, hey, what's the name of that app that you were talking about to block the internet? And I was like, it's called self-control. <laughs> and she like told me later that she thought I was being really snarky. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know about you, Olive, but I'm feeling pretty well prepped for the silly season now. And by the way, that is another idiom with a great backstory. Hear all about it on the 2SER segment that Olivia just mentioned, available to Patreon supporters on their podcast players. Or you can just find it on our website and everyone else. But before we go, we'd like to leave you with a message from our sponsor. Are professional photos all you want for Christmas? In a fast-paced, media-saturated world, flawless photography is your small business's best shot at the big time. If you'd like to look as good as the expressionists do in our headshots, you should get in touch with Little Big Shot. You can check out their work on thelittlebigshot.com and our listeners can get 10% off their first order. Just quote the code XPODCAST when you get in touch with them. That's EXPODCAST. All your Christmases are come at once. That's it from us for today, but not for the year. We'll be back on the 29th of December with another seasonal episode to get you ready for New Year's Eve and the resolutions that follow. Till then, I'm Helen Rydstrand. And I'm Olivia Rosenman. Goodbye and happy Hanukkah, Christmas, Festivus and silly season. Before you go, can I just ask you, what is your favourite silly season idiom? Do you have one? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Nothing springs oh, wait, to mind. Let me think, let me think, let me think. I know Ben, my partner, he really loves the idiom, I'm so hungry I could eat the ass out of a low-flying duck. <laughs> um, and I think it's, you know, we do a lot of eating around Christmas. Uh, so maybe yeah, that's, yeah, that's that the is... best I can think of. No, I think that's totally <laughs> relevant. I've yeah. never heard that one myself, but I think that's one we can definitely look into. Yeah.